friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. to go to God's Word, so may I invite you to please rise from your seats and let's come before the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we would like to thank you and bless you for this blessed time you've given us. Lord, what a wonderful time of worship that we have just had. Thank you for touching our hearts. Thank you for manifesting your sweet, sweet presence in our midst, O God, and indeed, Just by the praise and worship, Lord, we were touched, we were released, we were refreshed. And so, Lord, we pray that the Word of God might also be a refreshing Word that will inspire us, that will build us up, that will increase our faith and cause us to grow in the things of God. We pray, Lord, that you might minister to your people. I pray for myself, Lord. You know my limitations, but Lord, let me be your mouthpiece. Give me the voice of a prophet so that I might be able to speak to your people in such a manner that they know that you are the one speaking to them, O Lord. So we submit ourselves to you. I submit myself to you as well. And Lord, whatever is going to be achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. And amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord, please. The title of this morning's sermon is God's Grand Reversal. You know, if there's something I had hoped to achieve in this particular series that we're having with the book of Esther is for us to have a high view of God. Remember that the threefold worship of God involves His holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And basically, the word holiness speaks about the transcendence of God. It does not just speak about His purity. It does speak about His purity, but then it is so much more than purity. It speaks about His transcendence, that He is over, above, and beyond us. In every circumstance, in every situation, you and I are supposed to see the sovereignty of God and His providential dealings in our lives. Sometimes, you know, what happens is that it appears that God seems invisible to us. And so a lot of times we forget about God, we neglect God, we put Him in the periphery of our lives not knowing that He is paying attention to every detail of our lives. That includes both big and small details. And you know, when I think about that, it is truly mind-blowing because what I see is a God who cares for us, a God who loves us, a God who moves on our behalf. And this is what you and I see all throughout the book of Esther. And the story continues in in one continuing climax, so to speak, because we see the hand of God. Although we do not find the name of God in the book of Esther, we see all the fingerprints of God in all the pages. 
You know, at times we do not know that there are devious plans that are being laid out against us by Satan himself. Sometimes we're just going about our own daily grind, not knowing that there is actually danger lurking somewhere and it is waiting to smite us with all its fury. And the wonderful thing, of course, is that although Satan has devious plans against us, we know that our God is moving behind the scenes to protect us and deliver us from the wiles and the schemes of the enemy. As I describe this uh, particular situation, you probably see the similarity in the scenario that involves Mordecai. What Mordecai did not know was that Haman had planned to kill him in such a gory and public way. Remember the story as we find it in Esther 5 verse 14. Maybe let's just read this. Let's take a look at Esther chapter 5 and verse 14. And this was the plan of Haman against Mordecai. Verse 14 reads, Then Zeresh, his wife, Haman's wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows fifty cubits high made in the morning and ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet and the advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. Let me remind you that fifty cubits high is about seventy-five feet high. So if you want to imagine how high that is, just try to imagine a basketball ring. A basketball ring is about 10 feet high. So multiply that by 7 and more, and you have 75 feet. Now obviously, if you have something that high, it should be well above the trees, most especially in the Middle East. And the intention, of course, is to be able to make a gory and public display of Mordecai in the presence of all the citizens of the Medo-Persian kingdom so that as they are walking by the main roads, they will be able to see this man, Mordecai, hanging, impaled on a stake. And it was to be an object lesson to everybody that they should kowtow, that they should bow down, that they should prostrate themselves before Haman. So that was the plan and that was the intention of Haman. Thankfully, we have a God who watches over us and guards us with careful attention. And this is something that I'd like to bring before you over and over again. As I mentioned to you, sometimes it seems that God is invisible. And I'd like to be able to tell you, although our God is a spirit, although He is invisible, Definitely, he is not invisible in his working out the details of our lives. And that brings great comfort in my heart. Because when we take a look at the future, we don't really know what is before us. Like in the case of Mordecai, he did not really know that there was a plan to kill him. He did not know about it. But even while he did not know that, God knew what was going to happen. And God in His goodness, God in His graciousness made preparations so that Mordecai would not suffer the fate that Haman wanted to do with him. And so once again, we thank God for that. 
In fact, perhaps God has delivered us and saved us from, from many dangers that you and I did not even know were present actually in our lives. And so we thank a God who is like that, a God who constantly remembers us. The book of Psalms talks about the numerous thoughts that God has towards us. We cannot even count the number of times God thinks about us. And you might say, is that possible? With the millions of people all over the world, with the millions of Christians all over the world, can God really pay attention to me, pay attention to my life? Can He really work out the details of my life? I'm here to say to you, brothers and sisters, that He does. He does pay attention to you. And somehow it brings guilt in our hearts that in comparison to God, sometimes we don't even remember that there is a God. Oftentimes when we go to work, when we go back uh, to our homes after a hard day's grind, we forget about God. We don't even have God on, on the table for discussion. And that is rather unfortunate with the kind of love and attention that God pays towards us. And so in this chapter, what do we see? We will see the providential protection of God on Mordecai's life. There are actually two very clear movements in this book, which I'd like to show to you on the screen just so you know what to expect in this uh, morning sermon. Actually, it's, it's laid out in two very neat parts. You have God's intervention, and then you also have God's vindication. Now, under God's intervention, what we will see here would be the king's insomnia and his critical discovery, which I will explain to you in a bit, and then the king's inquiry, and then the king's intended reward. Now, when we follow through with the story, we find it develops or progresses into God's vindication. We find Haman's evil proposal, which we already read a while ago. And then we have Haman's false assumption, then Haman's grand suggestion, and then Haman's humiliation, and Mordecai's exaltation, and then Haman's sob story and his predicted future. So that's how the story will flow to us this morning. So let's dive into the narrative and let's take a look at how God intervened or God's intervention. And what we see here in verses 1 and 2 is the king's insomnia and critical discovery. Let's, let's ever read the verses 1 and 2 at this time. It says, during that night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now here's what happened. Now this, was, this happened on the evening before Haman was going to go to the king in the morning and announce his plans to have Mordecai hanged on a gallows 75 feet high. So you will notice here that even before Haman could actually make this proposal before the king, God was already moving ahead of time. And that's the interesting thing here. This, this very small 
detail is actually very important. And sometimes we think about sleep or no sleep, and we think those are really insignificant or irrelevant things. Well, in the scheme of God's things, some of those things can actually be very important. I recall the time when, when David was uh, hiding away from Saul. He was running away as a fugitive. And it so happened that Saul and his army were, were almost able to chance upon David and his own army. They were very, very near. And yet we are told in the scriptures that God put Saul as well as his military, as well as his army into a very deep sleep. And obviously the reason was to protect David and his men. So even something that we think is insignificant like a deep sleep is actually very important to God and he can actually use it for the deliverance and the protection of his own people. Now in this case, what God used was not deep sleep, but rather what he used was insomnia. So what happened here was, was the king was tossing and turning in bed and yet he could still not find sleep for himself. So what do you do in those occasions? Well, some of you have had some sleepless nights. In my case, when, when God really wakes me up in the middle of the night and I can no longer go back to sleep, I know it's a sign that I should be praying. So I take those times actually to come before the Lord and pray before Him. And I ask God, Lord, what are you laying on my heart? And whatever God lays on my heart, I start praying for it. In this particular case, again, God was really protecting Mordecai. So his being wide awake paves the way for the king to ask for the chronicles to be brought before him. And probably the intention was to read through it so that eventually, you know, his, his eyes would become droopy and he will finally fall into sleep. Interestingly, some people use the Bible as a sleeping pill. I know of, of uh, somebody who said that when I cannot sleep, you know what I do? I go to my Bible and immediately as I touch my Bible, I fall into a deep sleep. Don't do that, please. And hopefully you will not use this sermon this morning as a sleeping pill. All right? So I hope you're really paying attention and listening to what I have to say. But maybe that was the intention of the king. Couldn't sleep, so bring the chronicles before me. Hopefully that will bring sleep to me. And in so doing, guess what? He discovers an extremely critical deed. In fact, a noble deed that was done to him by Mordecai. And yet, surprisingly, this had escaped the notice of the king. Actually, we're talking about five years. Five years, the king, the, the king, this thing escaped the notice of the king. Can you imagine that? This was an assassination plot against his own life. And, and the big question is, how could the king possibly miss this detail when it was an assassination plot against his life? Well, my assumption is, and this is pure speculation, is that maybe he was dead drunk. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course, because we don't really know if he was dead drunk when this happened. But given his reputation, 
that might have been a good possibility. I recall Doug Nichols, he was sharing this to me. Uh, Doug Nichols, of course, is a missionary. And there was one time he needed a permit from the mayor of San Juan. Now, this mayor in San Juan, previous mayor, long time ago, you'll probably recognize him, has a reputation of being drunk. And sometimes even on the job, he is drunk. And Doug Nichols was actually having a hard time with uh, some government people to have this permit signed, and he needed it for his missionary work. So finally, uh, access was made for him to be able to see the mayor, and so he was praying to God, Lord, how, how, can, how can my documents be signed? Oh God, Lord, I've, I've been having such a difficult time. Please help me. And so he was ushered into the mayor's room, and guess what? The mayor was drunk. And so the mayor said, well, what do you want? I need some paper signed. And so he, he just gives the paper and just, and without thinking about it, the mayor just signs it. And praise the Lord, it was an answered prayer on his part. <laughs> but in this particular case, how could the king possibly miss out on something that was very important? And as I mentioned to you, he, for, he forgot about that this was neglected for five long years. But then again, God is sovereign. Amen? Could you say to your neighbor, God is sovereign. And what we know is this. If there are certain things that, there are, that are hidden, they are hidden for a higher purpose. So could you say this to your neighbor as well? If there are certain things that are hidden, louder please. If there are certain things that are hidden, they are hidden for a higher purpose. Now, I'd like you to think about this. I'd like to quote from the Bible knowledge commentary something very interesting, a very important detail, which I hope you and I will be able to see as well. And this is what it states in the Bible knowledge commentary. Of all the texts that could have been selected by the librarian, and by the way, King Xerxes had been a king around 12 years' time already. So if we're going to talk about the chronicles of the king, probably it could have filled up this entire space on the stage because we're talking about 12 years of all the chronicles. Now, think about this. What are the chances that the one containing the account of Mordecai's uncovering the assassination plot would be the one that would be read by the king. Think about it. A huge library of all the chronicles. And out of that, the documents containing Mordecai's unraveling the assassination plot was chosen. What do you think are the chances of that happening? probably would say 1 to 100. There was a very, very small percentage that out of the things that would be chosen, it would be the one that contains that particular narrative about Mordecai unraveling this assassination plot. So the big question was, how did that happen? Was it pure luck that this happened? Obviously not. 
This was the invisible hand of God guiding the librarian's hand. Probably the librarian was maybe even looking towards the left, but then maybe the librarian felt, no, no, I need to go to the middle. And then somewhere in the middle, he picks up this document containing Mordecai's unraveling the assassination plot. Wow. This is really amazing. And remember, in the morning, in the, mor- the following day, in the morning of that following day, the plan was to have Mordecai hanged on the gallows 75 feet high. The amazing thing is God moves ahead of time. And the amazing thing even is Mordecai does not even know it. He doesn't even know that his life was under threat. He did not even know that there was danger lurking in the corner. And yet God was moving on his behalf. You know, friends, I'm just imagining when, when, when you and I go to be with God in heaven, probably God will share all the narratives of our lives. And how he had protected us, how he had delivered us, how he may have used certain angels to protect us from certain types of danger. I mean, God is so good and God is so amazing. And I'm just blown away, amen. Aren't you blown away by this? Amen. Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. Let me show you a, a bigger picture. The entire course of history for the Jewish nation was changed because a king had insomnia. Think about that. The entire Jewish history was changed because of a pagan king who was hundreds of miles from the center of God's activities in Jerusalem. The author had not written why Esther asked for a delay before telling the king her request. But the reason was now made clear. God was going to elevate Mordecai and somehow prepare the king to react unfavorably towards Haman. What an amazing God you and I have. Amen? What an amazing God you and I have. And not only are we talking about the Jewish nation here, We're talking about the fact that if Haman succeeded in his plan to have the entire Jewish nation exterminated or annihilated, guess where that would bring us? It would bring us nowhere. Because without the Jewish nation, there would be no Savior, there would be no Messiah, There would be no death on the cross. There would be no payment for all our sins. And there would have been no resurrection to speak about validating what Christ has done. So where do you think would that leave us? It would leave us without hope. It would bring us into sure damnation, into the lake of fire. But thanks be to God, the king had insomnia. Amen? Think about this. Who would ever think that that small detail like insomnia would be so important 
in bringing about salvation, most especially to us, 2,000 years down the line after the death of Jesus Christ. Amen. And we are now worshiping and praising God and glorifying Him for our salvation. Guess what? Because the king had an insomnia. Hallelujah. So praise God for insomnia. Amen. Praise God for insomnia. Praise God for a deep sleep. Praise God for anything and everything that God does because everything that God does is full of wisdom. Amen? It is full of wisdom and insight. That is why God is holy, transcendent. And so guess what happens? The king therefore makes an inquiry because... This was obviously an embarrassment on his part. So let's take a look at verse 3 at this time. It says, The king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. The king discovered to his embarrassment that nothing had been done for this noble deed that Mordecai had done on behalf of the king. As I mentioned to you, this was five years ago. This happened five years before. And so five years had passed and nothing had been done on behalf of Mordecai. But you know, the delay, listen well, the delay was actually the source of victory and deliverance. So what does that tell you? The timing of God is always perfect. Amen? The timing of God is always perfect. And God is achieving His purposes. So here's the thing. Remember this. When your good deeds remain unnoticed and unrewarded, listen up. God might be reserving this for a time when you need it most. Can I say it again? God might be reserving it at the time when you actually need it most. Now, I don't know the mindset of Mordecai, whether he was complaining about the fact and saying, well, look at, look at this ungrateful king. After all that I've done for him, after I uncovered a plot, an assassination plot against him, he doesn't do anything for me. Well, we don't know if he was thinking in those terms. Or was he quietly submissive towards God? Did he yield himself to the Lord and said, did he say, Lord, well, it doesn't really matter. What's important is I've done the right thing. I've done a good thing. And Lord, even if men don't notice it, I know you notice, Lord. And I know, Lord, one day you will reward me. Maybe that was his mindset. But once again, regardless of that mindset, again, it came at the right time, at the time he needed it most. And notice the king intended to reward him immediately. Look at verse 4, please. Look at what verse 4 says. It says, so the king said, who is in the court? The king sought to repair the situation immediately. Because this had been unrewarded for far too long. Five years was too much. So what does he do? He tries to find out who was in the court. Because he wanted to instruct whoever was in the court to do certain steps to be able to reward Mordecai. And guess who was going to appear 
before the king. Guess who was there? And so let's take a look at God's vindication and Haman's evil proposal. In, in the latter part of verse 4, here's what it says. Tan now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. So here was, here was Haman huffing and puffing, boiling in rage and boiling in anger. This was early in the morning. Remember, that was the instruction. That was the suggestion by Zeresh's wife. So this was early in the morning. And he was so angry in his heart, he said, I will get back at this Mordecai. The king will definitely accept whatever I propose to him. And I will tell the king that he should hang this Mordecai on a, on a stake 75 feet high. And I will get back at this man. I will get back at this, at this person, this Jew. And so that was probably his mindset. And so... Again, this was early in the morning, and you would say, well, why, why take business early in the morning? Well, this is what I read in one commentary. It is the invariable custom for kings in eastern countries to transact business before the sun is hot. Remember, this is in the Middle East. Often in the open air, and so Haman was in all probability uh, coming officially to attend on his master for this particular matter. So interestingly, while God was preparing things behind the scenes, making arrangements to protect Mordecai, Haman had the opposite, the most opposite of intentions. And that was to make a public and gory display of Mordecai as he is killed. God, however, was not going to be frustrated. God, however, was not going to be disappointed. And I like what the book of Psalms says, that if we put our trust in God, we will never be disappointed. Amen? When we put our trust in the Lord, we will never be disappointed. So here's what happens. Take a look at verse 6, please. It says, so Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman, being the presumptuous person that he is, said to himself, Who would the king desire to honor more than me? So that was what he presumed. And so here he was initially going into the king's court, filled with boiling rage and anger. And all of a sudden, he was stopped on his tracks by the king. And the king asked a question, and this question somehow flatters Haman. Because the king was talking about honor. The, thing, the, the king was talking about giving a reward to this man. And so he was probably thinking, yes, this is me. And so he forgot about the first reason why he came into the king's court. And he was now thinking, it must be me. It must be be me. So that is why Haman makes a grand suggestion. Take a look at verses 7 to 9 because he was imagining this is going to happen to me. Then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn. 
And I could, just, I could just imagine here what was happening in the mind of Haman. He was imagining himself wearing the king's robe. I really look good in this. And then it says, And the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. By the way, that's how it is when it comes to the royal horses. A crown would actually be placed on the head of the horse. And so he was imagining, I will be riding on the king's horse. You know, before the citizens. And he was imagining all of that. The, the, the grandeur, the honor that he would receive. And he says here, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor. And so basically, this was going to be really public. There's going to be a ceremony that is going to be held here. And all of this was upon the orchestration of Haman because he was thinking, this is going to be done to me. I want a public ceremony to be done. Let it be elaborate. Let, let, there be, let the, the most noble prince come and let him do this to me. And he was imagining this. He was hallucinating during that time. He was dreaming about all these things. And then it says, And lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. What was he doing here? Because Haman had falsely assumed it was he who was going to be honored by the king. He thought of the grandest possible way he could be put on a pedestal to further enhance supposedly his greatness. Now I wonder if some of us have had these kinds of imaginations running through their minds. Well, I must confess, I, I had imaginations like this. Well, not, not this sort, but you know, one of my ambitions when I was young was I dreamed of becoming a famous basketball player. And so I would, I would imagine this scenario I was, as I would enter the basketball court. And I was, as I was playing, I would imagine the announcer, the TV announcer, announcing, saying to, to the people, and Mel Caparis dribbles the ball. He makes a fantastic crossover. And he moves in between two defenders. And he moves in, he dribbles inside, goes inside the pen, and he makes this amazing dunk, and the crowd grows wild. <laughs> Woo! Then reality sets in. I'm just in my backyard. <laughs> this is not reality at all. But you know what? This was what was happening in the case of Hammond. He was imagining all these grandeur. Take a look at these suggestions. There are four of them. It says, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn. All right? It, it, no apparel would do. It has to be the robe that the king had worn. And it says, the horse on which the king has ridden, on whose head a royal crown has been placed. No horse would do. Not even a racing horse. It had to be the horse of the king. 
Then it says, let the robe and horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor. No, this should not be done in a corner. No, there, there should be a public ceremony for everybody to see. Everybody has to know. Everybody has to know how great I am. And then it says, lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. So he was imagining him parading all throughout the place and it would have been a grand parade. All the, all the VIPs would have been there. So he was imagining this and he forgot all about Mordecai at this time. He was just having this hallucination. This was really royal homage which he desired. And he wanted to be treated just like a king. And by the way, that's how it is with proud people. You know, my, my granddaughter Dia, we're, we're trying to spend equal time with our grandchildren. We have five right now. And so we're trying to, to spend uh, some time because we want them to have a special childhood. So uh, it was Dia's turn, three years old. So we decided maybe let's just watch Aladdin or Aladdin. That's how it's pronounced. So we watched Aladdin so that she could enjoy and we were watching with, with 3D. And it's really interesting because there's, there's, a, there's a person there who is similar to Haman. Uh, I don't know what his name is, Jafar, that's his name, Jafar, you know, just the name itself, it's scary, Jafar, but anyway, this guy wasn't content with being just the prime minister, he wanted to be the next sultan of that particular kingdom. And so he was making all these elaborate plans to be able to secure this lamp, which supposedly had a genie which would grant him three wishes. And so guess what? It was Aladdin initially who was able to get that and get some wishes. But finally, it came to the hands of Jafar. And so what does he do? He rubs, you know, the, the lamp. The genie comes out. And he says, he asked the genie to make him a sultan. And immediately the wish was granted to him. He became the sultan of, of that empire. And so he was very happy. And he wanted the princess, he wanted the sultan to be, to be removed because he was now the man in power. He was now number one. No longer number two. He was now number one. But then again, Aladdin was a smart guy. He was treat smart. And so one particular time, they had this confrontation and Aladdin told him, you will always be number two. He said, how could I be number two? I'm already sultan. I'm number one. No, you're not. You're not number one. You're still number two. Because the genie is the most powerful person. And so you're just number two to him. And so he was really setting it up so that Jafar thought, well... If I, if I have to be number one, well, I need to become a genie as well. And so he asked the genie, played by Will Smith, make me a genie. And to make a long story short, 
He became a genie and he was so happy because now he was the most powerful being in the entire universe. Not knowing that you could not do anything as a genie unless you have a master. So guess what happens to him? He is now sucked into the very lamp and was thrown into a place called nowhere. Hopefully nobody finds him. So from being number one sultan, he became nothing. And there's a, there's a very powerful storyline there which is really very similar to this. And, and so let's follow through with the story. It says, and so here, here, here was Haman imagining all of these things and he says, whew, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really look good here. I'm going to be even more famous. But notice his humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. Beginning at verse 10, please. Then the king said to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horses up you, as you have said. And he was thinking, maunani, maunani, maunani. Woo-hoo, he said. And then it says, and do so for Mordecai the Jew. Ah, His world came crashing down. He could not believe his ears. All the while he thought he was going to hear the name Haman. But instead he hears Mordecai the Jew. Now isn't this quite interesting? Because in the previous chapters, you and I know that a decree had been made to annihilate the Jews. But then again, how is this possible? Because, remember, the reward was five years delayed. And now the king had no choice. Even though this Mordecai was a Jew, he had no choice. It was pure protocol on his part to reward Mordecai because he had done a noble deed. Otherwise, he would not even have existed. So that's the interesting part here. And it's, it's interesting that the narrator tells us this particular detail, Mordecai the Jew. Isn't that interesting? How in the midst of danger, listen well, how in the midst of danger you could actually be insulated by God. How in the midst of the storm you could be in the very eye of it where it's calm, where it's still, wherein there is nothing happening, there's just pure safety. This is just really amazing. So do this for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate and do not fall short in anything of all you have said. In other words, all the things, all the grandeur, all the majestic things you were thinking about, you better do that. Don't fall short. So guess what Haman does? So Haman took the robe and the horse. Poor Haman. Now he takes the horse, takes the robe and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him thus it shall be done to the to the to whom the king desires to honor all the things that he had imagined now he had to he had to eat all of his words And he now had to do the very thing he imagined himself having. And he was now doing it for his arch arch enemy. How amazing is that? Amen? Remember, 
Haman was the prime minister. He was the second most powerful person. And yet, in the presence of God, the second most powerful person was powerless before the Lord. Amen? Any man is powerless before God. Because God is almighty. So Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. What an irony. What a reversal of for fortunes. Haman was forced to honor Mordecai in the way by which he wanted to be honored. What was his intention? To have Mordecai killed in such a gory and public way, and yet the reverse happened. Instead of a gory and public death in the case of Mordecai, he was honored in the most high-profile, majestic, and public way. And guess what? Haman had to implement it all the way. Haman learned that you could never put down the man of God or God's instrument because Mordecai was going to be God's instrument for the deliverance of the Jews. You cannot go against the man whom God has set aside purposes. And it's not because of anything special on the part of Mordecai, by the way. You know that Mordecai was compromising as well. But God laid out the purpose again for him. And if, if you set yourself up against God's purposes, you will actually bring harm your way. And that's exactly what we find here. By seeking to harm God's anointed, Haman was in fact harming himself. So what happens here is Mordecai returns to the king's gate, back to his job, but now this time with greater honor. And I'm sure his the people who were at the king's gate were probably looking at Mordecai with admiration. A lot of people probably hated Haman, by the way. Nobody loves proud people, right? Nobody loves uh, arrogant people. And so the people must have been rejoicing uh, for Mordecai. But guess what? It says here, Haman went home mourning with his head covered. So he went home broken humiliated, embarrassed. He was covering his head. He was probably going home and he was, he, was probably look, he was probably imagining the stares of his neighbors and he was thinking, I gotta hide myself. This is so embarrassing. This is so humiliating. Why did I get myself into this hole? But you know what? That's how it is. When you are not in the center of God's will, when you oppose the work of God, when you oppose God's purposes and God's instruments, this is the sad fate you will enter into. And that is why we find his sob story and his predicted future, no else than his wife was the one who announces it. Take a look at verse 13, please. It says, Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So in previous times, what would Haman do? He would call his wife, he would call his friends, and it was all about 
a me party. It was about my achievements. It was about my honor, my fame, my popularity, my resources, my riches, my sons. It was all about I, me, myself. But this time, it was absolutely different. The atmosphere had changed. It took on a somber, sad, depressing mood this time. And this time, what was Hammond talking about? He was talking about his humiliation. He was talking about his embarrassment. And to add insult to injury, his wife and friends made a prediction of his complete downfall. In previous times, Zeresh and all the friends were cheerleaders. And now they were telling him, it's doomsday for you. You're going to fall by this man. They also recognized that they could not defeat the Jews. And why? Because the Jews were God's chosen people. Yes, they were being punished by God. Yes, they were chastised by God. Yes, they were being disciplined by God, but they were still God's chosen people. And you know what? When I was reading this, what came back to my mind is God's covenant with Abraham. What did God say to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? I will bless those who what? Bless you. And I will curse those who what? Those who curse you. And why do you think God was going to do that? Was Abraham anybody special? Was he really a very righteous person? No, he was a liar. He was willing to, to give his wife to foreign kings if only to preserve his life. What kind of a husband is that? And so it had nothing to do with, with any righteousness, nor any merit, nor any goodness on the part of Abraham. It was purely God's grace and God's electing choice on him, which made God say, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Because in the mind of God, it was through Abraham, listen well, that David would be born, and through David, the Messiah would come. That's why, again, you have to connect the Abrahamic covenant to Genesis 3.15, the promised seed. And that is why God was saying, I will bless those who bless you because I'm going to protect that seed. And I'm going to curse those who curse you because once again, I'm going to protect that seed, the Messiah, which will bring about salvation for this whole world. You know what? This sermon is timely for me because we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Amen? I think about all these details. I think about this, this narrative. And sometimes we think it's just a story of, of the triumph of good over evil. But it is so much bigger than that. Herein we find really is the gospel story. It is the gospel story of God preserving a nation. Making them the, the repository of truth. Enlarging that nation so that 12 tribes come out of that nation. And then a, a tribe, one tribe is selected because from this tribe would come the Messiah. From this tribe would come the Savior. Who would have thought that all these details would connect to us? But how it is so much connected to us. 
Can you imagine this was probably more than 2,000, maybe 3,000 years before we came into this world. And God was already planning this because, friends, he was thinking about you. He was thinking about me. He was thinking about each and every person. And he knew if Haman succeeded, we would all go to hell. And God would not have it. God wanted us saved. God wanted to make us sons and daughters of God and he will not allow the plan of Haman to succeed. And that is why to Israel, God said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. What was in the mind of God? What was in the mind of God was dying for the sins of the world. What was in the mind of God was our own adoption as sons and daughters of God. What was in the mind of God is that our names would get written in the book of life. And that is why every single detail from the book of Genesis was all leading towards this direction. When Christ would finally die for the sins of the world, that whosoever should come to him should have everlasting life and shall not perish. What a beautiful story the gospel is. Amen. And it's not just about the cross. It stretches all the way back to the book of Genesis. Every minute detail was towards this particular goal and particular end. That's why I say to myself, Lord, thank you, King Xerxes had insomnia. Praise the Lord. Amen. (laughs) Praise God for insomnia. Satan can never, ever defeat the purpose of God to bring salvation to the world. Let me close with Genesis 50 verse 20 because I believe this summarizes everything that you and I have been talking about. Let's read together Genesis 50 verse 20, just the first part. It says here, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Can we say that together? On the count of three. One, two, read. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. One more time. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. For the last time. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes at this time. And I'd really like to give opportunity to those of us who have not yet accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. I hope that you got my point when I said that every single detail was leading towards the ultimate climax of Christ dying for the sins of the world. Christ died for you. He paid for your sins. 
and it is a gift. Salvation is a free gift that He offers to you. It is up to you to receive it or to reject it. My prayer, however, is that you understand that salvation is never your work. It is never by good works. It is never by your own righteousness. It is only by grace through faith alone that you could be saved in the finished work of Jesus. If you believe that and if you repent of all your sins and ask God to change you and mold you by the power of the Holy Spirit, guess what? Your name gets written in the book of life. And if that is what you desire for this morning, while every head is bowed, every eye is closed, I'd like to help you pray. Actually, you can pray on your own if you want. But if you need somebody to guide you, that's what I want to do. It's not my prayer. It's, it's your prayer. You need to make it your own. And it needs to come from your heart, not from your lips. But if you want to receive and surrender your life to Christ right now, could you please, just for me to find out if I should be leading some people in prayer, just slip up your right hand to the Lord, please, at this time. Yes, sister. Yes, sister. Yes, brother. Amen. Anyone else? Yes, sister. Amen. Yes, sister. Amen. Amen for those hands. Yes, brother. I see that hand as well. Amen. Amen. I see that hand, sister. Amen. All right, you can put them down right now. Please pray this prayer from your heart, please. Remember, God doesn't listen to your lips. He listens to your heart. So pray this, please. Lord Jesus, I now understand I cannot save myself. And whether I like it or not, I'm accountable to you. I am accountable for all the sins that I have committed against you. I need to make payment. But Lord, you know I cannot pay. It is an eternal indebtedness that I owe you and I cannot pay for that. And what you require, Lord, is perfection. What you require is perfect righteousness and perfect obedience, which I do not have. But Jesus, you lived a perfect life and you died a perfect sacrifice. So where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. So I run to you, O oh Lord. You are, you are my haven. You are my safety. You are my salvation. So I run to you, Lord, and I ask for forgiveness for all my sins. And Lord, cleanse me and wash me. Cover all of my sins, past, present, and future. And make me the kind of person, Lord, you want me to be. From this day onwards, I am yours. Thank you, Lord, for the free gift of salvation. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen and amen.